Welcome to another edition of EDS at Union Now. Jack Jenkins is a leading religion journalist. He and Dean Douglas discuss COVID-19 and the religious left. Jenkins' recent book, American Prophets, charts the long-standing moral force from the left in American politics. The book includes profiles of contemporary activists who struggle for justice across the myriad of social contexts. Also, be sure to check out the Poor People's Campaign on Facebook. Good afternoon. I am Kelly Brown Douglas, Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And I welcome you to another in our series of conversations on being church in the time of COVID-19. It is an honor to have joining me today, Jack Jenkins, national reporter for the Religion News Service and author of American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country, a book that I recommend to each of, for each of you to read, particularly in these times in which we find ourselves. And so, Jack, thank you for your book. Thank you for being here with us today as a part of this conversation. Thank you so much for having me, it's, it's an honor. So let's jump right in, there's much to cover. This COVID-19 crisis has of course exposed the many fissures of injustice and inequality in our society that have been at best ignored and become all too commonplace and acceptable in this country. And so in many respects, it is made clear that our claim to be a democracy where there's freedom and justice for all is at best an aspirational claim. But more than that, it is perhaps also exposed the fissures within our faith communities. For these growing injustices have happened on our watch. And so let me begin by asking you, as you view the landscape of faith and religious communities from your vantage point as a uh, reporter, what would you say it means to be, in fact, a people or community of faith in times like these? Huh, that's an excellent question. And I agree there's, you know, one of the most fascinating things about this pandemic is um, it is a collectively, it, it's an experience that has, you know, it affects everyone, but how it affects them and um, how it affects different communities of faith has been really interesting and revealing. Uh, for instance, I think one of the big fissures that we've seen exposed is that, one, I want to be clear, I'm not going to paint with a broad brush to say, you know, make, make full generalized claims about everyone, but um, you know, for instance, while there have been breaches of social distancing by faith communities across the board, irrespective of political or theological belief, it's interesting that um, communities that are often deeply conservative and Christian and overwhelmingly white and, um, and often supporters of the president, when they talk in public right now, the issue for which they are most concerned, where there's a lot of advocacy, is about whether or not they can get back into those churches and whether or not they're able to congregate in spaces anymore and blaming you know democrats um, or their local governors for barring them from doing that whereas more progressive faith communities often communities of color often communities that aren't necessarily um, christian etc cetera, etc cetera, 
um, they those the concerns of those faith communities have been very different. Um, you know, when we're talking about those who are you know clamoring for masks and those who are advocating for those who you know are having you know, having problems with rent and um, asking for assistance for those who have already been in uh, dire straits medically, for instance, um, before this, and you know their their main connection to the community is a church or a synagogue or a temple. And that those communities are the ones rallying on behalf of their own congregations. Their main concern in the ones that they're lifting up right now isn't necessarily to get people back into worship spaces where it might put them at risk. It's to lift up the concerns of communities that were already at risk before the pandemic hit. And so that's been really revealing in, in something that I've been watching in terms of the religion and politics space in that, you know, again, members of what we might describe as the religious right have been really slow to respond to the pandemic. And those that have, you know, sometimes have been, you know, breaching it outright and, and trumpeting, you know, how they think that they, they are being wronged by putting these positions. Whereas groups like the Poor People's Campaign or Faith in Action um, or Bend the Ark um, have been, you know, rallying to, to protest this administration's response and to call to for care of those of what they would classify in some traditions as the least of these. And that's, you know, again, not, a, not I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but in public, that seems to be a, a division that's occurring in terms of advocacy. Well, that leads to this question, and as you talk about in public, and so it seems as though, even though, even in ver various states where people are protesting, uh, and sometimes uh, these protests are filled with people who are carrying guns and other mm -hmm. kind of uh, signs and symbols of white supremacy, uh, uh, that e even in these states where we see these protests, People are saying, but these are this is a minority of people. This the majority of people aren't protesting in this way to get back out. So what this indicates again is that a certain demographic has controlled the narrative on the public square. We might even suggest that in relationship to faith communities and I'll talk about the Christian community, that it seems as though this fundamentalist or right uh, Christian community, as you speak about it, have indeed, or demographic, have controlled the narrative of what it means to be a people of faith, what it means to be Christian on the public square. Whereas the progressives <laughs> or mm -hmm. those, the religious left, as you have uh, identified in your book, mm -hmm. while you say they've been working behind the scenes and creating policy, et cetera, et cetera, they don't control the public square. They don't control right. the discourse. What we're seeing, I think, in some ways, the consequences of that during COVID, what's your perspective on that? What is the consequence of not really being more vocal? uh on the public square yeah i think this is a, this is a really interesting um, question too because like i said like those those more conservative christian groups are the ones that are getting all the attention for what they're doing and like you we've had um what was it never again action a jewish group and, and the new sanctuary coalition of new york city have both been you know staging protests you know kind of like in cars um driving around immigration and customs enforcement um, uh, buildings, as well as those of lawmakers or, or governors, you know, saying you, you to tr calling for them to release um, the uh, immigrants who are at risk of infection at this stage of the pandemic. And that gets significantly less coverage right. than 
than if, you know, the, these people who were standing outside, for instance, there was a man who was among those who were um, standing outside uh, the state house in Michigan. And when asked if he was nervous because he was you know, wearing a, a mask and gloves, um, he said, no, I'm a Christian. Now, <laughs> never mind that Christians of all ilks have been felled by this virus, irrespective of faith and, um, you know, and churches. But it's one of those things where that's, that's what ends up becoming the narrative. And I think that's something that the religious left has often struggled with. And it's something that, you know, as a journalist, when I wrote my book and also the reporting that led up to the book was really fascinating to me that a lot of subsets of the religious left are, are hyper-organized. They'll have gatherings of thousands. They'll be able to, you know, really push for change in specific ways, whether that's, you know, local legislation or um, a statewide piece of legislation, or even at the national level. And you, you have people like Reverend William Barber who are out there, you know, really trying to push national campaigns. You have people like Sister Simone Campbell, who's head of um, the Catholic Social Justice Lobby Network, who are out there really pushing for this kind of stuff. Tracy Blackman, who has really kind of, you know, occupied a very prominent space within the United Church of Christ, but also within activist circles when it comes to race and immigration and, and climate change. But again, and something you've noted is that the, there hasn't been the same sort of recognition of this group as having um, power or having even um, influence on the way people talk about religion in the public square. And the consequence is that they have less impact in an overt way. Um, usually, and what I kind of chronicle in my book is that they are having tangible, very real impact and have helped pass massive pieces of legislation, including the Affordable Care Act, but it happens quietly and almost behind the scenes. It's not something that allows them to reclaim the mantle and the, the, the sort of concept of religion in the public sphere that the group often described as the religious right has held on to for so long. But it seemed, even with that, yes, being the case that what impact then does that have on our culture and the collective right. moral conscious of a people? And so what we see now is the kind of rhetoric we see, we are seeing now this very, you know, well, the ideology and the cultural realities of white supremacy. And when we see something like we've seen happen in Georgia, uh, young black right. man jogging, right. uh, and we don't hear this moral voice. It's crickets uh, from the White House, and it seems that it's crickets from the religious left, the white religious left. Right. And so that shapes a collective consciousness. And we have the sort of uh, conservative Christians who are seeming to shape that. And so right. you, you get these kind of movements to, of protests uh, presumably for liberty, but we know it's about much more, but it's cloaked in a Christian narrative. So what are we seeding here? No, I think that's that's a really interesting question too, because to your point, while there are faith leaders and activists who do decry such those sorts of things, if they aren't if they are recognized in the media or if they aren't as loud as they need to be, or if there's, like you say, crickets, particularly among white progressive Christians, what that means is in public, that doesn't become a faith calling. That doesn't become a reflexive thing to say, well, as a person of faith, I must decry that on moral grounds. You know, the, the, the shooting of unarmed black men in public, right? Like that, that doesn't, that's not a faith issue. That's just unfortunate and you change the channel. But if it's an issue about abortion or opposition to same-sex marriage, for instance, um, and you're a conservative Christian, that is seen as an authentic faith issue in the public square. And so you don't have this cachet where when, if, if a pastor decries that and they're not, for instance, a member you know, of, of a black Christian community that might be directly impacted, 
by that, the loss of that individual, then they're seen as like, that's kind of weird. I mean, I guess it's a faith issue, but the way that those get created, the way that we become um, aware of, of, of a, fat, a moral fabric in a society, in a culture, is when we decide to accept things as normative. And the only way you do that is if you have the kinds of things you're talking about, where someone, say, a, a white progressive Christian decries those sorts of acts in public, the media covers that as, some, as, a, as an authentic Christian witness in addition to the pantheon of other Christian outcries and other faiths that are crying out against that. And then that becomes known as a faith issue. And in lieu of that, it will be the religious right who continues to occupy and hold on to the concept of religion and the concept of moral um, stakes connected to faith in the public square. So let me stick with this just for uh, a, a minute more and before we start asking, so what's the solution to this? So when you talk about, yes, not being able to see certain things and recognize them as a faith issue. And what we've seen recently, the white religious uh, left has recognized that the matter of immigration and the way in which we treat uh, immigrants is an issue of faith. They've talked about the way we treat strangers, et cetera, the way we treat the least of these. Even when we've talked about uh, the rights for LGBTQ persons, it has become a, a faith issue and the way in which every human being is seen as a sacred child of God. What is it about this matter of race that does not allow the progressive white uh, religious communities, there are exceptions, but that doesn't allow it them to speak out as boldly uh, on issues of racial injustice as they've presumably done in relationship to other issues. Because we know the black faith community is when we talk about Ferguson and all of that, we're talking about Tracy Blackman, uh, et cetera. But, What's going on in, in the white progressive Christian community and beyond? So I, I think it's a really an important question. And one of the things I kind of talk about in a chapter that kind of deals with race in my book, near the end of it is kind of the impact of Ferguson and then Charlottesville in particular was like the kind of forging of some new connections and communities um, that kind of crossed into, you know, more white religious spaces um, when it comes to solidarity around racial justice, the Black Lives Matter movement. and. Uh, but what's interesting about that to your point is like, well, where's that been? <laughs> and, and I think there's a complicated confluence of answers that could that feed into that. I think one of them is just history. I think also one of the tendencies that I found in my reporting predating those incidences, and I think that could be backed up any number of histories is, you know, white progressive Christians often kind of ceded that space to black Protestants in particular to say, well, that's that's a faith issue, but it's kind of their faith issue, right? You know, we'll we'll show up and, and, and wave at the at the you know rally, but we're not gonna necessarily trumpet that from our pulpit. Um, and what I have heard from some pastors and, and faith leaders is that it's interesting, you know, they they might feel very strongly about an issue of race, for instance, but preaching about it, they get so much blowback from a ostensibly progressive community that they become wary of discussing it in public. I was told that by some pastors that they felt that they were pushed out of congregations um, for that were primarily white and, and otherwise they felt to be deeply progressive because they were taking a stand, for instance, on police brutality and disproportionately and how that disproportionately impacts people of color. And so it's one of those things that one of the critiques I've often heard of white progressives um, from activists in this space is that you know they 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 can put the Black Lives Matter um, sign outside in their 
of their church, but that's not the same thing as owning racial justice as a faith issue, like you said, they might do for immigration and, um, you know, this new sanctuary movement, et cetera. And I think that really comes down to um, this, that, that, that it actually is more complicated in their communities than they might want to admit that issues of race are still uncomfortable, even among ostensibly deeply leftist, liberal, progressive, Christian communities that otherwise feel that they're, you know, they're they're at the vanguard of religious progressivism when it comes to LGBTQ rights, for instance. Um, I just think there's, and I we talk, I talked about that a little bit in the book. There's there's just a lot more work that needs to be done in that space, um, you know, from the perspective of progressive activists than a lot of the white progressive activists want to admit. Yeah, it reminds me of what Martin Luther King said, and it remains true that uh, our to paraphrase him, sort of the, our greatest enemies are not the bad folks, those people who are just downright white supremacists and carrying those signs, but it's the silence of the mm. presumably good white Christians that is most harmful. And it's revealing of really how, when we talk about white racism, when we talk about white supremacy, how deeply embedded that is even within our uh, white religious uh, community. So there's something about, I always say, something about whiteness uh, that becomes a barrier when uh, we are called to live out the values of our faith. So here's what I'm wondering, Jack, and you can tell me what you've seen. COVID has made very clear the uh, racialized, if you will, uh, disparities and inequalities in the systemic and structural and cultural uh, racism in this country. We see that in the numbers uh, in terms of not only those who are contracting the disease, but those who are dying from it. Uh, mm -hmm. When we talk about people of color, uh, Blacks, uh, Latinx communities, and Native Americans, it's appalling. So, is this, can this be a call to consciousness uh, in terms of the white progressive uh, religious community? Uh, can we all come together around this, even if they can't come together around the fact that a black man gets killed in the middle of the street jogging, that this is, this is unmistakable. Uh, what, what have you seen? What are your thoughts? So as someone who's reported on activism for a while, I feel like three things are true at the same time with regard to that. <laughs> One of them is that um, you know one of the most powerful forms of activism is this poetry of protest. It's presenting in public um, that which had been you know that uh, obscured in the in the undercover of darkness. Right. The classic example is the civil rights movement when so many demonstrations there were just trying to bring out into public and in front of cameras and in front of journalists that which had been the lived reality um, of African Americans in the country for you know since its founding. And so it's one of those scenarios where when that sort of is performed, there is an impact, right? You know, the, the movie Selma kind of actually talks about that from, from start to finish as an activist, you know, how it can move people to action. And so at some level, um, the, you know, the, the reality of, of this pandemic does that even without the element of protest. It exposes those inequalities. It exposes those realities in our society um, without having to be in the streets. It just shows up in the spreadsheets. Um, and so I think, that is something from an optimistic um, point of view from the perspective of activists that could say, look, like you, you can't ignore this, right? The second thing that's also true is that we have seen those moments performed before. We have seen in society for a variety of movements, 
um, whether it's you know Newtown for gun violence, um, whether it's Charlottesville for um, for race, whether it's any number of you know catastrophes with regard to climate change, and those are performed in front of people, and action is not taken. It can respond. It can result in mass activism. It can result in actually a shift in public opinion where the majority of the American public will support taking action on something, for instance, like gun violence. Um, but it doesn't necessarily result in a major legislation change or you know, systemic um, change at the, all the way down to the local level. So, so that can be both sources for optimism and pessimism. The third piece is that what, the, what, what is often missing between those two realities is the third one, which is that power is weird and it still exists. And you have to, if from the perspective of activists, regardless of the, their political persuasion, if you want to change what's happening in a country or in a government, you have to figure out which lever of power you're going to push and push on that. And so if you have this performance of inequality happening amidst the pandemic, and you understand that the American public can be slow to move, or if not the American public, lawmakers can be slow to move. You have to capitalize on those moments of profound, uh, of profound performed realities in a way that pushes level levers of power. So what I do know is that there are many activists that are in better positions to influence the powerful now than they uh, on the progressive religious left than they were 10 years ago. So there's potential for people to act on those realities, but you have to, you have to add, you have to put plus signs in that equation if it's going to equal systemic change. And so those, that's kind of how I've looked at this pandemic as well, is that it is one thing for the reality to be performed. It's another thing for that to result in change that will benefit those who are most impacted by this. So your book talks about the soul of America. So we can talk about systemic and structural change. We can talk about policy making and legal changes and you've really emphasized the progressive or the religious left in terms of creating and helping to uh, make those kind of changes from mm -hmm. the Affordable Care Act, from uh, same-sex marriage and beyond. But what about their impact on the soul mm -hmm. of this country? The, you know, the everyday realities of the way people think about the other. What impact, we've seen the religious right have that impact. What, what, what do you say, what do you think is the future of the soul of this country? Um, I love that question. And, and, and as, as, a, as a reporter of religion, I'm excited by it. And as a reporter, I'm terrified by it. Um, because it requires you to, to to really look at the theological reality of this, which okay. is that it, it is arguably easier to change a law than it is to change the hearts, minds, and souls, or impact the souls of those who are going to be impacted by that law. And and I think that, that, that it, it, it is, you know, if, if you for many religious traditions, the reflexive is to point to what some describe as human, um, some describe as human simpleness, right? That it's, it's it's harder to get people to be altruistic than it is to get them to just say, oh, that's not my problem, or that's they are they are undeserving, right? When we one of the things I talk about in my book about this concept of the undeserving poor, right? Um, those concepts are invented in ways that that benefit those who already have power, who already have privilege and means. And so it is always going to be a higher call for you know progressive activists, you know faith-based or otherwise, um, to try to convince people to not only act differently but think 
and in the religious context, pray and experience the universe differently, where they don't just see, um, well, I need to do this so I don't get yelled at on Twitter, but I need to do this because it is what is right and what is just. And I think that is the unique call of the religious left. That is a unique element of the religious left that makes them powerful in a way that I think is more difficult for activists in the more secular spaces. Um, and, and the religious right has proven to be very, very prominently successful at that, that they have, you know, with, with issues that they, um, they describe as moral issues, particularly um, LGBTQ rights and abortion. They say that these are deeply held moral issues and they've managed to like really prop up the Republican party in many ways around those two issues. And I think the religious left has a similar power to impact the way people are and how they see the universe and how they connect to the divine which is like life changing for a lot of people. It's just that theology has to be preached a lot to get systemic change. And you know, how, how long were we preaching similar messages back in 1776 that still haven't been actualized? Um, you know, people, th th things that were being preached in, um, in the early era among the least in the dis dispossessed that we still have not made manifest on. And I think that's kind of like the lifelong project of the religious left. But it also, unfortunately for them, it's, it's not something they get to wallow in <laughs> because the dispossessed still need those, those people to change the hearts of others. And so I, I would argue that um, you know, there is this battle for the soul of the country, as I, as I um, describe in the, the, the subheading of my book. But what that really means is, is changing the way people operate and how they think about not only themselves, but their relation to others. And that will take time and more than just a law change. It will take a lot of hard conversations. So final two questions, following up on that. So what is the role, you're a religious reporter, national for a national uh, uh, organization. What is the role of not simply a reporter, but a religious reporter when it comes to changing the soul? Okay. <laughs> what a great question. Um, so, you know, I, I am religious insofar as you know, I'm Presbyterian. Um, and I am of the disposition that uh, the, you know, there are people who try to pretend that journalists and reporters should be automatons that don't have feelings and opinions on anything. And like, we're just robots that see things and tell you what, what would happen. That's not true. And I believe that the virtue of, the, the virtuous act of a reporter is having those things and still pushing yourself to always tell a fair and true story, even if it's about people you don't like, even if it's about organizations that don't like you. And um, so I say that in the concept of, you know, bearing witness is one of those things that can have an impact on others. And we reporters don't describe ourselves as advocates. We aren't activists. It's not what we do. But we do try to draw attention to things that we think are important and noble that are, 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 are worth noting. I mean, we're advocates for the subjects of our stories because that's what reporting is. It's drawing attention to unjust things. You know, I, I, the... Would, would the reporters for Spotlight describe themselves as advocates? No, but they are doing, they were doing just work to try to draw attention to the Catholic sex abuse scandal. You know, all of these reporters that recently won Pulitzers just this past week, often they were doing the hard work of going into having difficult conversations um, with um, systems of power quite often and having conversations with those who have been impacted by power and making sure that's in front of the American public to see. That doesn't always result in change, right? You can have a front page article on something very important and people just you know, turn the page or change the channel. 
but it is the responsibility of a reporter to to make sure that you are talking to the powerful not in ways that give them a pass but in ways that reflect those who don't get to a, a massive megaphone um and i am of the disposition that journalists you know it, it is not just you know something that they should reflexively do every once in a while but it is our charge to inform the american public about wrongdoing injustice corruption and about that, which and while we also cover things that are that are going well, not with an uncritical eye, and that requires also acknowledging the plight of those who are struggling, and that that isn't always easy, that isn't always fun, um, but ideally, in a in a in a perfect world, you know, exposing those sorts of things can impact the average American and how they think. Um, I forget, you know, there's there's actually an apocryphal adage, you know, in in the Christian tradition of um, you know, preaching with the Bible in one hand and the New York Times in the other. Um, it's not technically, I believe, what, what was said, but I really like the idea um, that you are that, that in a religious context, regardless of what faith you are, you are informed by the present and also moved by the traditions and the precepts of your faith. So I think the reporter has has a role in that one hand and um, and in the bearing witness in, in its in its best form can help, you know, alter and change um, the public for the better. Great, thank you, Jack. We are right up at our time. And so <laughs> I, I wanna give you the opportunity to say one last word. And if you can, like what, if you look into the future, come fall, we're gonna be in the midst of one of the most significant elections in this country, really <laughs> determining the soul of this nation. Mm -hmm. What is the thing that you would like to leave us with as you look out on that as a religious reporter, uh, to what do you see and, and what do you see ahead for the challenges even of faith communities and trying to have some impact the religious left on right. that election? You know, I, I will think what's interesting about this past democratic primary is that the religious left already has started to have a more noticeable impact than they have in several cycles in the past. You know, the, the fact that so many candidates wanted to show up to events hosted by, for instance, um, Reverend William Barber and Reverend Liz Theo Harris and the Poor People's Campaign and wanting, you know, everything from Pete Buttigieg standing silently at his protests to um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren speaking on stage alongside them. Um, you know, those there's already some elements to which uh, you know, the religious left and parts of the religious left are, are, are helping push this in one direction or another. Arguably, you know, African-American Protestants are part, a big part of the reason that Joe Biden's the presumptive nominee. Um, and so fast forward to the general election, it's, everything about 2016 was about these narrow margins of victory for Donald Trump. He has a very narrow path to victory to, to get reelected. And so it's these small little communities that have long been like thought to be inconsequential compared to bigger demographics that could make or break the 2020 election. And that includes a lot of communities that are important to the religious left. That includes African-American Protestants. That includes um, Muslims who live outside of, uh, you know, lives in Dearborn, Michigan or outside of Detroit. That includes Jewish communities. That includes white mainlighters and white Catholics who live in the Rust Belt. Those are people whose votes may not have always been at the center stage. Some of them have. Um, but but that are going to be courted in a very specific way come 2020. But I will say this, which already been interesting. It's um, there's already some coverage of uh, you know moving ahead towards November, where we might still be you know in relative states of lockdown. We're talking about whether or not we'll be able to vote by mail. And certain states you can't vote by mail without an excuse. 
But in Missouri, in the past, um, past few days, uh, a group of rabbis realized that while fear of contracting a terminal illness is apparently not an adequate excuse to vote absentee by mail, religious faith is. And so they have issued a statement declaring that it is a religious um, edict that you should be protected and that that should be something that allows someone to vote um, to vote by mail. And I think that other faith communities may be primed to take a similar attack. And that alone will enfranchise those who um, otherwise wouldn't have been able to vote or if they voted, they would have been literally risking their lives to do so. And so I, I would be watching those sorts of things closely as well as to your, to your point, um, what I think it's notable that these religious left figures and faith leaders have started to impact um, these candidates. The question remains whether that will impact their moral language come November. And I, I think there's some signs to indicate that it already has. But again, as stuff shifts to the general election, who's whispering in the ear of those candidates and what comes out in their speeches may be up for debate. So just, just keep an eye out. I think it's going to be different this time in terms of the impact of the religious left, but we'll see. Thank you, Jack Jenkins. And what that suggests is we're going to have you back again to as we get closer to the election. This conversation could go on forever. So it is a teaser into future conversations. Thank you so much for a very insightful uh, conversation. And we will look forward to more and look forward to hearing more from you. And thank you all for listening in. Thank you for having me.